Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, a production of Mercy University Center for Theology and Public Life, the director of which is in the studio with us today, as he always is. So it, it sounds exciting, but it's mostly just a fact. Hi, David. Hey, Jeremy. <laughs> Good to be with you again. We're yep. sitting in my downstairs office uh, in Atlanta, uh, looking out on a lake, which is quite lovely on a hot Atlanta day. It is a good view for a basement office. It is, yeah. So this week, William Wilberforce. I So I read this ch- the chapter on him a while back, and I've read God's Politician, and I've, I've read the, the big blue book that's just called Wilberforce. I don't, I don't remember who wrote that biography, but I've read that one. So I, and I saw the movie. I went to a Christian school, so I saw Amazing Grace. Good preparation, Jeremy. Yeah, I'm trying, but to make sure I really knew what was going on, yesterday while I was having my teeth drilled at the dentist, I listened to the audiobook again. There's a joke in there somewhere. That, that is serious commitment. <laughs> and now Wilberforce will be associated with pain, which is not what we want. But. Well, it's, it's also not inappropriate for the life of Wilberforce to be associated with dull, drilling, grinding pain. You are a smart man, Jeremy. Shall we start there? <laughs> let's let's get into that. How, how do we get so... Social location, I think, is one of the most interesting things about the Wilberforce story. I don't think it makes any sense if you don't understand young Wilberforce. You can't jump the early years. Can you tell us who young Wilberforce was? He was a child of uh, the nouveau riche um, capitalist class in uh, 18th century Great Britain. So he was not part of the lords and ladies of the manor who drink tea all day long because that's what their grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents mm-hmm. did. Uh, he lived in, he was raised in the port city of Hull, which is uh, on the I don't know my my directions anymore, but I believe that would be the eastern coast, um, and uh, facing towards like um, uh, Holland and so on that direction. And uh, the family made money in um, trading. I mean, they were um, store owners and traders and so on, and and so they were part of the rising. Uh, capitalist class right and they're doing good at it they were very good at it his grandfather was was mayor of hull as i recall the father inherited a lot of money and when his father died he inherited a lot of money too um enough to not have to do right much of anything yeah he, he in, in in one sense the ambition of the nouveau riche was to be able to enjoy the idle leisure of the old riche right and uh and that could have been Wilberforce's life, but but it wasn't. He um, his father died when he was about eight or nine. Uh, the accounts differ, and his mother, who was a kind of a partying um, secular type, um, put that on a gravestone. Yeah, partying secular partying type. Secular type, nominally Anglican, decided to send young William to live with his aunt and uncle in Wimbledon and the Wimbledon area. And they happened to be evangelical Wesleyan Christians. And under their influence, uh, Will, William uh, basically became a young evangelical Wesleyan Christian 
And then a few years later, mother, horrified to learn that young William had become an evangelical <laughs> Wesleyan Christian, uh, called him back and brought him back to Hall and said, we got to get more partying secular nominal Anglicanism into you. Yes, that's what we need, because you're going to become a boring, self-righteous, prig, evangelical Wesleyan who doesn't know how to play cards or go to parties or drink must tea learn to dance. Or dance or, or, or joke or, or be a upwardly mobile young gentleman. And so he actually said something along the lines of, no pious mother could ever have wished for religion as much as my mother wished for my irreligion, basically, you know? <laughs> um, so, so she wanted him to be, um, like her and, um, and he, he spent the rest of his growing up years, uh, in boarding school as, as, you know, kids did, but then he went to Cambridge and basically played around, uh, partied. He was the life of the party had plenty of money to gamble and drink and and go to the men's clubs and gamble and drink some more. He wasn't crazy evil. He was just idle rich. Mm-hmm. He's those kids you see in Cancun every spring. <laughs> Life of the party. Um, he he thought, well, what will I do? Huh? Maybe I'll get elected to parliament in 17... What was it? It was about 1781, I think. Something okay. Something like that. Um, yeah. 21 years old, he got elected to parliament. That's obnoxious. Yeah. Um, it's a different kind of system. Uh, it it, it looks like it does today, and it kind of looks like ours, and it kind of looks like a representative democracy, but it doesn't. It's not actually. It wasn't. There There were uh, significant political reforms ahead to make uh, Great Britain's democracy more of a democracy. I think I read that something like 4% of of the male population had the vote. I mean, so. And it, it was sort of, it was like Athens. You had to have education and land. Yeah. Uh, and maleness helped, too. So, so anyway, I think it was not a particular chore for him to get into parliament. Uh, and at first, he had no particular sense of purpose there. I think he vaguely wanted to make a constructive difference. Reminds me a little bit of Florence Nightingale's father, who also wanted to be in Parliament, but he ran and lost. And uh, I understand he was, from Florence's perspective, was pretty purposeless and you know didn't know what to do with himself. Idle rich, right? Um, part of what he ended up doing was investing in his brilliant daughter's education, which thank was, goodness, yeah. Um, so, but then on a long European trip, a few years later, with. Uh, Isaac Milner, who had been one of his teachers uh, back in Wimbledon, who was an evangelical, a smart evangelical Wesleyan himself, um, they talked about his issues of faith and 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 and, ha- and his kind of where he was in relationship with Christ, and he essentially reconverted. And, um, but then that put him in a new kind of crisis. It must have been that the understanding of of um, what it meant to be seriously committed to Christ at that time in the Wesleyan subgroup was was very separatist. Um, you can't. He initially thought, I guess, if I'm going to be committed to Christ, I can't be in Parliament anymore. It seemed incompatible politics. Yes. And Christianity. I mean, think about that. And we can think of ways why politics and Christianity can seem incompatible, too. Mm-hmm. But 
I think it's something about the compromising and the and the messiness of politics, but also just the worldliness, uh, the the worldliness of the lifestyle. Yeah, the, their politicians were millionaire playboy philanthropists that went to parties and hung out in smoke-filled back rooms and sometimes did some politicking. I, yeah, yeah, and there was, it's, I think it's important not to underestimate the role of those men's clubs, you know, the mm-hmm. smoking clubs and the... Leather chairs, the card leather, games. Uh-huh. Right, yes, and a lot of gambling, a lot of drinking. And he, he felt like, well, if that's all part of it, I guess uh, I'll just retire to my um, to my home and um, pray and do other things. But partly through his friendship with William Pitt, who became the youngest prime minister in uh, England's history, I think at the age of 24, maybe, um, and other people uh, who were influential, he concluded that he should try to do something different. He should try to integrate his faith into his political work. And he ended up settling on the idea of being a reformer a Christian reformer in a supposedly Christian country, if we say that we're Christian England, how are we doing? Mm-hmm. We're not doing very well. It is time for a reformation of manners. A reformation of manners, don't you know? So, <laughs> um, so he decided to jump on um, the opportunity to call England to its own values. And, and so that's what he did with um, uh, essentially a crusade for virtue and defeating of vice at first. Mm-hmm. It, it was about gambling and um, animal rights, right? Yeah, that that was came a, into That was a unique was concern to... for him, but also like sexual morality, uh, Sabbath keeping, mm-hmm. um, business morality. Um, he ended up gradually broadening his concern to um, uh, the criminal justice system and all of its cruelty. Yeah, where you just, it was capital punishment for everything. You steal a loaf of bread. Dead. Right. Um, I mean, if you've, if you've ever seen um, some of those old costume dramas, uh, oh, what's, the, pause this, what's <laughs> the show? Okay. We haven't seen it in a while. Okay, never mind. Anyway, we tend to think of England as drawing room England, if we've watched much BBC mm-hmm. or PBS, right? Uh, Jane Austen, England, Victorian England. Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, England. But, Still old, even though it's new. But but this was before all of that. It was a pretty crude and cruel country, uh, especially for the poor. And a lot of leftovers from medieval England. I think that's right. From- like... Um, Gambling over uh, cockfighting in the streets, or dog fighting, or and um, and and just uh, uh, a pretty heartless, godless, supposedly Christian country, and he was going to reform that, and there was a lot to do. But then uh, the slavery issue came to his attention. Now, how does it? Because okay, why should he, of all people, why is it William Wilberforce who's going to get? drawn towards this because at this time there's not slavery on the island very very little at least was Um, this because of haiti were they scared out of it or was it the appearance of it Haiti was a little bit later okay um um, the the slave revolt in haiti um 
There was a burgeoning anti-slavery movement in England led by uh, humanitarians, Quakers. Always the Quakers. Um, uh, some Christians, though not everybody saw that as a Christian issue. That's interesting to mm-hmm. think about. Um, kind of some secular and some religious people, early Enlightenment values. Um, but just the idea that it is wrong to enslave people. And there were certain certain cases that brought brought this to the attention of a broader public, like the, the Zong massacre, the slave ship Zong, in which uh, some slave traders decided that all things considered, that their best financial play at a certain point was to throw all of their slaves overboard and drown them and, and get the insurance money. Mm-hmm. And uh, They had taken damage to the ship on the voyage, and that was how they were going to pay for it. Yeah, right. And so... So this shocked the conscience of, of a lot of people who had not really studied the issue before. My understanding is that some folks who were already in the fight came to Wilberforce and said, you need to pay attention to this. You care about the moral uh, values and the Christian nature or lack thereof of this country. You need to attend to this. So he got called out by people that already that saw something in him. Yes, they, and that he was in a position that maybe he could do something about it. Okay. And and so and so the fight came to him and he embraced it and uh embarked on a long grinding difficult parliamentary effort first to abolish the slave trade. And the idea is if you can abolish the slave trade then then that's going to lead to the natural end of mm-hmm. slavery. Um, and then eventually to abolish slavery itself. And so it was essentially a 20-year a fight to abolish the slave trade. And, and then another um, 25 years to abolish slavery itself. And, and there were hard fights. Hard fights. Every specious and ridiculous argument that could be made against the effort was made by parliamentarians who had vested interest in the slave trade. Their money was in it. Um, There were arguments like, uh, you're going to hurt us economically. You're going to hurt us uh, in terms of security. Yeah, you're siding with our enemies. Yeah, if our enemies have slavery and we don't, they have an advantage over us. Um, You you care about those strangers more than you care about us. Um, Whatever people could throw at them. The attacks became personal. He, he was physically threatened. Um, he r- ruined his health in the effort. Um, He's sick for his whole career once uh-huh. he takes on this fight. Yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting because it, it was one of the first grassroots and grass tops uh, human rights campaigns. Um, the anti-slavery campaign. To So they did things like uh, collect... Um, petitions of names of people who were for them and rolled the petition, you know, out there for parliament, um, uh, boycotts of, uh, products like sugar from, Mm -hmm. from the West Indies and, um, that kind of thing. So, uh, so they capture the imagination of people in a way that, um, hadn't really been done before. It also, the idea that, that the people would care about what the parliamentarians were doing and that the parliamentarians would have to care about what the people were saying was a relatively new idea. He was, 
in one sense, seen as a rabble rouser for getting the people agitated about this. Let the let their betters decide mm-hmm. was what some people thought. But but he felt this was a moral issue, and that that it was part of Christianizing England. And uh, it's it's a great story. And he was an extremely effective speaker. And as a group, uh, the organizing effort was, I mean, they had fits and starts, but on the whole, it ended up being successful. And the slave trade was abolished in 1807. <coughs> this might be a, a romanticized memory of the fact. D- did it pass the motion on the day he died? The... Um, the uh, the bill to um, abolish slavery itself in the British Empire was I, I read some like the fourth reading of the bill was passed and then he died the next day. I don't think it was completely done, but okay. it was very nearly done. It's very romantic. Yeah. Um. And by then he had retired from the fight because he was too sick and too mm-hmm. old. Others had carried it forward. Um. Wilberforce showed what can happen when somebody with moral vision has political power and when somebody of Christian faith mobilizes their faith in a way that doesn't turn people off but instead turns people toward a a moral cause, right? It's like we hardly ever see this anymore because we're so used to polarized, mm-hmm. you know, in other words, the right wing has its preachers who appeal to them and the left wing has its speakers who appeal to them. He was appealing to the whole country. I've never seen that. Yeah, we just, uh, there just hasn't been anybody like that uh, because of our culture wars. Um, the people who were against him were the people who mainly had political, had economic vested interests and also... Um, there were some who felt like, we're not sure we want this kind of voice in Parliament. We, we want Parliament just acting on the basis of the st- strict national interest of Great Britain. Mm-hmm. He brought in a moral voice and said, we're making money off of the violation of the dignity of human beings, right? and we can't do that. That's different. That, that matters. Um, and... I think it is relevant to ask about the moral dimension of statecraft. To what extent should legislators and presidents and so on be thinking morally, not just in terms of the self-interest of the country, but what is right and what is wrong. And that's what he was doing there. And I think politics needs a transcendent dimension so so that we don't do beastly things in the name of the state. Right. There's been a... Um sort of a meme going around that I've seen on my social media a bunch that's um, it's it's an exaggeration but it it blames a lot of our current lack of imagination and lack of moral imagination and ethical understanding of the world on an overemphasis of the stem fields um, oh. mm-hmm. don't study humanity study stem it's it's like a every five year things like two, 2000 the message don't don't study humanity. Study STEM, two thousand and five. Study STEM, two thousand and ten. It's the sciences that matter, two thousand and twenty. What's going on here? Why have we forgotten how to be human? 
I think that's a good question and that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, uh, we've also elected a president who, in my humble opinion, has very little evidence of what you would call liberal humanity in him, right? You know, those, and by I mean, I don't mean liberal as in left, I mean liberal as in the liberal arts, liberal right. thinking, you know, um, the life of the mind uh, at work, uh, the imagination. And so, yeah, I think that's part of what we're looking at right now. And it's interesting, Wilberforce uh, has been most popular among conservative evangelicals. I think the main Wilberforce renaissance happened uh, kind of around the Clinton presidency. Okay. And, and then um, into the George W. Bush period, people began retrieving Wilberforce. Um, at that time, Clinton was seen as a kind of amoral or immoral liberal president, and, and we need uh, leaders who are men, always men, mm-hmm. of uh, Christian values and integrity. And... Um, a reformation of morals. <laughs> and and he and so there's like Wilberforce fellows at various mm-hmm. kind of conservative institutions and Wilberforce was 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 hot. I think it's interesting because I'll take Wilberforce any day over what we're seeing right now. Um I think that pragmatism and raw power politics in in the interests of a certain kind of conservative political agenda is all the rage right now. And I'd like to see a little more moral thinking mm-hmm. among my brethren on the right right now about something beyond abortion, perhaps. So I think I wish we had some better sources for Wilberforce. I mean, it's been a long time now. That was 200 and, you know, right. years ago. There's some disputes in the record. Um, uh, one of the other um, uh, fighters for the abolition cause, Thomas Clarkson, uh kind of battled with Wilberforce's sons for, mm-hmm. uh, over who should get credit for the abolition of slavery in England. Um, so there's that kind of tawdry stuff. But um, but what we have, bottom line, is a highly placed parliamentarian. He didn't have to be in parliament. If he was in parliament, he didn't have to use his parliamentary position Um as um, as a moral platform, mm-hmm. but he did. And his unique background of both plenty of worldliness and plenty of Christianity. Right, he was formed. He was formed form for early. this role. He could mobilize the faith that the people said they believed in, and some of them still did, and have the social skills to kind of play the parliamentary game as well. It could turn that Christianity back as a critique on itself. Good, yes. And so if he had been all priggish fundamentalism, he couldn't have been effective. But if he didn't have the moral vision, he wouldn't have cared. Mm-hmm. And that was a powerful combination. So maybe one of the takeaways is, is we want people who have a combination of deep Christian formation and political awareness and engagement that is deep and thoughtful. And you put those people to, together in in uh, state and national capitals, they can actually make a constructive difference. How do we start creating these kinds of people? I don't. I haven't found many of them. Um, I would say that I'm 
I'm meeting some of them at the undergraduate level at Mercer. I'm teaching some students who want to go into foreign service and um, a government service of all types um, with a moral vision. But what's interesting is even there, a lot of the ones who look very promising to me, their faith is muted or not really there. They they have the broad humanitarian values and whip smart. Right. You know. Your um, standard Mercer student. Yeah, that's right. But but the faith piece is not always there. Um, I think we've stumbled on this a couple times in our uh, uh, recording today that culture wars kills everything. Uh, tribalism kills everything. It's mm-hmm. like you have your right-wing activists and your left-wing activists, and the right-wing activists have faith. and Left-wing activists don't often, but the faith that is the version of the right-wing activists is a faith that I don't recognize often. And the non-faith of the left-wing activists is often not that far away from the values of the gospel, but they don't know that or don't claim that because it's all been poisoned. Right. You know, if if Jerry Falwell Jr. and the current version of Franklin Graham and Robert Jeffries down in Dallas and whoever uh, whoever Trump has on his faith advisors circle, if they represent faith, it produces an allergic reaction on the part of millions, and that's what I'm seeing um, Mm -hmm. uh, on the part of a lot of my students. not the seminary students, but the college students. And so, and I think this is going to, uh, this is going to affect an entire generation. This, the polling is very clear on this already. It's the most secular generation in American history. And um, I see it in the classroom. I've se- I see a difference from 10 years ago. That's fascinating. Yeah. I had, um, I had a student at, at a, my church ask me sort of a, why is this the way it is? So a question about how churches interact with each other. And I told him the stories, uh, the war stories of the Baptists in the 90s. Right? He said that, yeah, they fought this culture war with each other. And they said, who won? I said, nobody. We all lost. I think we did all lose. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to, to keep the story of Wilberforce alive. Um, there are things that can be criticized about him. Uh, you know, he was pretty intolerant of people who didn't share his version of evangelical mm-hmm. Protestantism. Um, he was uh, pretty strongly nationalist in his way. Um, he didn't uh, go out of his way on economic justice issues um, in general. He just really got into the slavery issue. Right. Um, but but on the whole, I think he, he represents a model of diligent, impassioned, moral advocacy, effective moral advocacy, resilience, dealing with disappointment, getting back off the canvas and starting again, all of it impressive. And, you know, there are, there are reasons why they, the Brits were able to do away with slavery legislatively and we were not able to do that. Yeah, um, that, that's, that's a question for me from this, the big story here that I'm always thinking about right now. There's um, a very popular sort of pop-up podcast. They finished it. It's like 10 episodes and they're done because they're telling one story. And I, I can't remember the guy's name. I'll add it somewhere else. Um, 
but it's called It Could Happen Here, and it's about a second American Civil War. Mm. And he's a uh, combat reporter, and he's he's been in Syria uh, during their Civil War, and he's come home, and he's like, oh, crap, this looks really familiar. Mm. And so he's been doing this big story of, here's how it's going to go. This is what it's going to look like. Here's how it's going to happen for a second American Civil War. And I'm wondering how the uh, how England of Wilberforce managed to do all this stuff without killing each other. I think it was because slavery was offshored. It was in the Indies. Mm-hmm. It was out there. Um, imagine if half picture the the island, right? Picture. Um, your the, your visual map of Great Britain. Imagine if half of it was slave and half of it was not. Right. Um, there, if you're ch- if you're challenging slavery in the slave trade, you're challenging geographically half right. the population and their way of life and and all of that. And so, um, because there was not significant amount of slavery in England, it was not wired into the way of life or the economy of a substantial part of the population. I mean, it was providing its effects, and there were some who were being made fabulously rich off of it, but it wasn't so many people. It wasn't a section of the country. Right, okay. And so, I mean, I would like to just say that if we could have had better, more Wilberforce-like people in the U.S. in 1833, 1843, 1853, we might have avoided the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we could have, but but I do think that those factors are real differences. And, and so um, the tragedy of, of the way America uh, developed is very real. And we also know, you know, I didn't know this until recently, the slave trade was abolished in the, in the U.S. as well in 1808. But what it did was to, um, to alter the trajectory of slavery rather than to end it, for example— uh, because you couldn't import slaves you had to readily, grow them. you you had to you had to grow them by um, forcible breeding campaigns, basically, you know, with the slaves that were already there, and so slavery changed and evolved and became, in some ways, even more cruel because uh, slave women's bodies became the pivotal um, site of the growth and maintenance of slavery. And, um, you know, the, the breaking up of families mm-hmm. and, the, you know, the, 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 the ruthless abuse of slave bodies, slave women's bodies, uh, to maintain the institution became all the more important. Um, and also because, let's say if a, a slave owner forced himself on a slave, the child born was hard black and therefore slave. And so there was even, you might say, an, uh, a new incentive to do that. Um, so so slavery, in some ways, was worsened by the abolition of the slave trade in the U.S. Um, part of the great tragedy of American history, all of that. So, so Wilberforce, and I used to teach of him as kind of like the road not taken, like if we could have had a Wilberforce, maybe we could have avoided what what happened and maybe we could have but our our situation i think is has more built-in 
uh, impediments to that having been what would actually happen. So, yeah. So what does the legacy of Wilberforce have to say to 2019 specifically? Um, how about if we say, how about if I just say this? Notice the balance of his vision. You know how you got the conservatives saying, don't you hit me up with that social justice stuff. That's liberal mm-hmm. stuff. And the liberals saying, you know, don't talk to me about all that right-wing crude morality stuff. That's conservative stuff. Wilberforce was both. He cared about the Sabbath. He cared about, <laughs> well, he cared, and he cared about uh, personal sexual morality. Yeah. And he cared about criminal justice. And he cared about Bible translation. He cared about missions. He cared about uh, the treatment of animals. And he cared about slavery. That's a that's a pretty balanced ethics portfolio compared to the way we have swung either left or right. Right. And so every example we have of somebody like that is good for us to be reminded of. Very good. Thank you, David. Thanks, Jeremy. <laughs>